0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Norway is a world leader when it comes to renewable power, but its fabulous wealth has come from, still comes from, selling North Sea oil. A renewables startup scene is starting up, but the country is wrestling with the shifting economics of energy. And even more than elsewhere in America, people in Los Angeles love to travel by car. The city is trying to coax Angelenos onto public transport, beefing up its infrastructure. But people seem happier to pay for those works than to take a bus to work. First up, though. Omar al-Bashir, the former president of Sudan, has long been the number one target of the International Criminal Court, or ICC. It's more than 10 years since he was indicted for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, mainly in the country's western region of Darfur. But the ICC has had no power to arrest him, so as with others indicted by the court, he's not been brought to justice. In fact, Mr. Bashir has traveled freely across the African continent in full view of the court. That has damaged its reputation and raised questions about its potency. But following the uprising last year in which Mr. Bashir was deposed, he now languishes in a Sudanese jail. And the ICC, it seems, is closing in on its man.
1: General al-Bashir, he seized power in a coup in 1989 in a self-proclaimed Islamic revolution. Richard Cockett is a senior
0: editor at The Economist and author of Sudan, Darfur and the Failure of an African State.
1: The Islamic phase of Israel lasted for about 10 years. And after that, it was all about self-preservation and self-enrichment, and particularly putting down the various rebellions that sprung up against his rule in all um, parts of the country. The most famous conflict was the rebellion in Darfur, which began in 2003. The government claimed that it was um, operating a limited counter-insurgency campaign against rebels. In fact, it was a program of mass um, ethnic cleansing, where the Sudanese army and their militias, the Janjaweed, went into villages, particularly in Western Darfur, and basically um, obliterated these villages.
2: When you see a village like this, you get just the beginnings of an idea of the scale of this displacement. Meanwhile, Darfuri people are continuing
1: to suffer and die. Many believe that what's happening here is genocide. And it was for the acts in Darfur that um, brought him to international attention and brought him to the attention of the International Criminal Court. And he was indicted for war crimes and crimes in 2009 and then the following year um, for genocide. And it should be stressed that Bashir has denied all the charges against him and um, he has denounced the ICC as a political court. He doesn't recognize it as an um, organ of international justice. And, and then what happened? For the next 10 years, he remained president of Sudan The ICC, unfortunately, doesn't have its own police force, has no power to capture him himself. He flew around Africa, thumbing a nose and nose of the ICC. And it was only after he was toppled from power last year that it became possible for the successor government, those who overthrew his rule, to hand him over to the ICC. And so the International Criminal Court, the the ICC, has the power to pass
0: these judgments but not seemingly to do anything about them?
1: Yes, uh, it has limited power. The ICC was um, set up by the Rome Statute in 1998 and started work in 2002. The idea of the court is that it's it's an international court which can try regimes and members of those regimes, heads of state, for the worst crimes. Um, So genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Now, there are two ways it works. Countries can hand over those suspected of these particularly awful crimes to the ICC or if a country is not a member state, is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, then the UN Security Council can direct the ICC to investigate crimes in another country and indict those responsible. And that's exactly what happened in Sudan. And what happens after they're indicted? Often, uh, indicted those indicted of uh, these most awful crimes, are brought to The Hague, where the ICC is based, and they are tried in The Hague. Some of these prosecutions have failed for lack of evidence, but there have been modest successes, and indeed, you know, they have sent people to prison as well. And so where where in that process uh, will, will Mr. Bashir fall? In this case, we're not absolutely certain how it's going to work. On February the 11th, the civilian military council that now rules Sudan after Bashir was toppled agreed that he should, in their words, face the ICC. Now, that could mean about three things. It could mean that they send him to The Hague. That's unlikely, though, Because that would be a humiliation, a natural humiliation for many Sudanese people. What could happen is we could have a hybrid court in Sudan where ICC members, ICC judges would move to Sudan itself. And together with Sudanese judges, you could have a hybrid tribunal or you could just have a straight ICC court that operates in Sudan independently. That would be novel. That's never been tried before. Whichever option is chosen, whatever happens in this case, it will doubtless reignite all the old controversies about the ICC, and in particular, its operations in Africa. Why is the in Africa part particularly important? Because the ICC has acquired an awful reputation in Africa, particularly amongst African governments, because many Africans see it as picking on Africans to the neglect of the rest of the world. I mean, it's certainly true that all inditees so far, the ICC have been African. Uh, they are a selection of warlords, heads of state, generals, etc., from a variety of African countries. Given all of that, have the ICC done anything to address the concerns about bias? Well, one thing the court did was to appoint a chief prosecutor who is an African, and that is Fatou Bensouda, a Gambian who trained in Nigeria. And the
2: ICC, as its beacon, are attempting To make their mark in propelling humanity's progress forward towards
1: And it's she who often points out that most of the cases against Africans that the ICC has heard were referred to the ICC by African governments themselves. So she very much tries to present it as an instrument of African justice, not, if you like, white colonial justice meted out to Africans. And I think that has helped. And if the ICC successfully
0: prosecutes this against Mr Bashir, do you think that will raise its reputation further?
1: Yes, certainly. He's number one. He is accused of three counts of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, everything. And, you know, for the past 10 years, the ICC's reputation has undoubtedly been damaged by their inability, their impotence in the face of Mr Bashir, you know, thumbing his nose at them. So if they do get a conviction, if they just get him into court, I think that would do wonders for the ICC's reputation. It would be a real Philip for international justice. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason.
3: Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles, Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.
0: Norway is struggling with a paradox. It's one of the world's leaders in the use of renewable energy and technologies, but also one of its major oil producers. The country has plowed oil money into its sovereign wealth fund, now the world's largest with a staggering trillion dollar balance. But as the government looks to divest the fund away from the industry that built it, Norwegians are left to do some soul searching about their financial future.
2: Oil is the reason why Norway is one of the richest countries in the world.
0: Vendelin von Bredow is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent.
2: It was discovered in 1969 by Philips Petroleum, an American oil firm. It's basically been a source of great riches ever since. So in the 1990s, um, Norway set up a sovereign wealth fund, and the idea was really to save up um, all the wealth created by oil. They're using interest returns, but they're saving up the wealth in order to be prepared for a post-oil future and to have a safety net once either the oil runs out or, which one probably couldn't foresee at the time, but what's happening now is that the world is uh, falling out of love with oil and trying to consume much less of the stuff. And although Norwegians are very green and are very keen to be very ecologically minded, of course, it is the main source of their wealth. So although they are trying to be as green as possible in everyday life, they depend on oil and they will continue to do so for quite a while.
0: I mean, that does seem to be a strong tension, a country that that has made all of its money from oil wanting to get entirely away from it. I mean, how, how can that be resolved?
2: It is a tension. And when I spoke to the 32-year-old who was just appointed Minister of Climate and the Environment, he he admitted it's a paradox because Norway is one of the greenest countries in the world. Um, Nearly 100% of its electricity comes from renewable energy. Heating with oil will be banned this year. When you walk around in Oslo, you see Teslas everywhere. Norway is one of Tesla's most lucrative markets. And Oslo was the first city in the world to even set a ceiling every year for its greenhouse gas emissions through a climate budget. So it's it's doing all these exemplary things. At the, at the same time, it is a major oil producer and just inaugurated a new rig in the North Sea, a, a massive new new rig. So um it's, it's doing both things and, and of course, they clash.
0: But there is this sort of uh, widespread will to get away from oil. I mean, how is that progressing or how will it progress?
2: Well, there are basically two factions in, within Norway. So the younger generation, or in particular the younger generation, does want to get away from oil. So many of these young entrepreneurs running startups, or they said, you know, oil has no future and we have to get away from oil. But of course, the older generation, some of the trade unionists, uh, members of the Conservative Party, they strongly feel oil has created our wealth and we should continue to drill for it and produce it. Because if we don't do it, then other countries will do and they will get all the riches. So they don't feel so altruistically inclined. And they basically said, this is the basis for our Considerable wealth, and we should stick to it.
0: Well, but you mentioned that there's a, a something of a startup scene. Is is there any chance that a, enough wealth could be generated from that in, in working more in the sort of you know progressive stuff, the the renewable stuff, that it it actually exceeds the the country's oil wealth?
2: Well, there is a startup scene, but it's very new. It's only really um, started to blossom in the last five years, so it's still very small, for, certainly compared with the oil industry. So at the moment, it's very far from being able to compensate for the oil wealth. I mean, it's it's admirable what has happened in the last five years, because Norway is a a very, well, actually, in terms of space, it's not such a small country, but it's only got 5 million people, 5.3 million people. And considering that, they're creating amazing companies. But it's still tiny, you know, compared to the huge oil industry.
0: How do you think the long-term attempt to to get away from this will play out, or will the Will the temptation of all of that potential oil wealth always be too much of a draw?
2: I think for the foreseeable future, the temptation of the oil wealth will be too much of a draw. I think in the next probably 40, 50 years, Norway is likely to continue to depend very much on oil and to focus on oil. But there are attempts to move away from it. There are attempts to, for instance, become innovators in the fishing industry. There are interesting interesting things going on in fishing to um, focus more on the retail and wholesale industry, which are already quite big in Norway, bigger than one would expect. So to diversify the economy away from oil. But because oil is just so lucrative, I mean, this will be a slow shift and not a fast one, even though many of the younger generation would love it to be much faster than what is likely to happen.
0: Wendelin, thanks very much for your time.
2: Okay, great pleasure to be with you.
0: Los Angeles is notorious for its dependence on the car. There are alternatives. Now arriving, La Cienega, Jefferson Station. But despite the traffic jams, for many, driving in LA is quicker and more convenient. It's hoped that changes to the public transport system could one day make it a less car-centric city.
4: America has two types of cities, really.
0: Daniel Knowles is The Economist's international correspondent.
4: You know, it has older cities on the coasts like New York or Chicago or San Francisco, which kind of have public transport that a lot of people use. And then it has kind of newer cities like L.A. and Houston and Atlanta that really they're built for driving. And... LA is a city where people drive, but what sets it apart is that it's trying to become a city where fewer people drive. It's trying to build a lot more public transport, and it, it, you know, its mayor wants to uh, reduce the number of car trips in the city by half over the next sort of 20-odd years. So it's got this very big plans for itself.
0: And so what do the public transport options in LA look like at the moment?
4: Well, there's a fairly extensive system. There are a number of light rail lines, there's subways, and then there's a lot of buses. So it's this pretty wide network that can get you near enough anywhere. But it's also a bit disconnected. It's not very obvious how it works. It's also often quite slow. But it's got this big, well-funded network that's unlike anywhere else in a city of its size. And how much are people actually using that network, though? So the last kind of five years, the number of people using the system has fallen fairly dramatically by about a fifth. And ridership uh, has never kind of got up despite all this investment to the levels it was at in the 1980s. They're building new rail lines. And for a while that managed to kind of counter out falling bus ridership. But now it's all falling. So yeah, people just aren't using it.
0: So so what are the city's leaders trying to to do about those declining figures?
4: In 2016, there was a a vote in Los Angeles County and 72% of people agreed to pay a new sales tax that will raise money for public transport in LA. And that, together with some other kind of previous taxes, means there's, there's quite a lot of money for investment in public transport. And, you know, the LA County Metro has been investing quite a bit of it into new rail lines they just announced that they're they're going to reorganize bus routes which haven't changed for a long time so they are trying quite hard to improve this system
0: why do you think it is that it's so hard for angelinos to make that shift to using public transport more
4: well, the trouble with LA is that it's quite an easy city to drive around. It has this kind of extensive freeway system and it's quite spread out. It's got a huge amount of parking. You know, there's a, a hundred square miles at least of LA County is covered in parking. That's about a sixth of the area of all of London. Driving on the freeways is free. So as soon as people can kind of afford to buy a car, then they start using it. And it's very difficult once people have cars to persuade them to get back on the trains and the buses. And, you know, for the most part, public transport in LA has been used by the very poor by people who haven't been able to afford cars and recently more of them have bought cars. You know, there's been a big kind of boom in subprime lending for people to buy cars. Uh, wages have gone up and there's just fewer of those people who are forced onto the buses than there used to be.
0: Right. So there are two angles here, the the making the public transport option better um, and to a degree exerting some pain for using the the, the the private transport route, which is certainly what's going on in cities well, like London where there's a congestion charge. Is that, is that not something LA could do as well?
4: Well, so it's something that Metro, which is the agency in LA County responsible for public transport, has kind of said will be necessary. And I interviewed one of their officials, their head of innovation, Joshua Shank, who said that too. You know, they kind of think that they've raised all this money for public transport from sales taxes and and in future they're probably going to have to try and raise it from drivers and that way you know at the same time as kind of raising money also encourage people to get out of their cars especially when there is traffic and you know that that really is what they have to do but that will be hugely controversial in LA there's kind of a lot of resistance to anything that really makes life tougher for drivers
0: and what lessons are there to be drawn here for, for other American cities? You, you say that, that L.A. is kind of a, a thing unto itself in terms of its, its development and the sort of integration of all of the, the roadways and so on, but surely lots of American cities are, are tussling with these same questions.
4: Well, I think the lessons for are particularly kind of important for other big sp- Brawling kind of car-dependent cities in America, you know, the newer cities, the cities mostly built after World War II, like Houston and Atlanta, Dallas, which, like L.A., have this kind of big spread-out car culture. And they, like L.A., tend to have kind of liberal uh, Democrat leaders who talk a lot about kind of the need to reduce climate change emissions and to get people out of their cars and... Yet they don't have anywhere near the money that L.A. is putting into public transport. And, you know, and if so, if it's not working for L.A., then I think it wouldn't, it's going to be all the more harder for those cities. And I think really the lesson is that you have to be quite brave as well as raising money to try to change these car-dependent cities into more sort of public transport-oriented cities.
0: Daniel, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure.
0: Our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, spoke to the mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, last summer about L.A.'s traffic concerns, including one melodic remedy, smooth jazz. Check out The Economist Asks wherever you listen. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
3: Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles.